Hey, Jay. Hello, Nick. How's it going, my man? Well, uh, pretty good, all things considered. I told you about the little bit of a kink in my neck I just kinked, uh, but I'm hydrated. I'm feeling extra hydrated and uh, clear, clear-minded, which is good. Mm. Well, you have had a hell of a year. I was thinking back over um, some of the things that have happened to you and that you've done. Um, so let me, uh, you know, indulge me. Let me go down the laundry list a little bit. Oh, in gosh. the last, <laughs> just make you really uncomfortable. It seems like in the last 12-ish months, you have launched and grown a new podcast, Creative Elements, um, over half a million downloads, I think, with some pretty impressive, awesome guests like James Clear and Seth Godin. And that's on top of a podcast you already do, um, Upside. Your community of freelancers, uh, the Unreal Collective, got acquired by Pat Flynn and SPI. And you're now um, kind of helping to steer that, uh, the SPI Pro program. It's a big deal. You've launched a very cool online course, Podcasts Like the Pros, which I've taken. It's very good. Um, and it teaches kind of beginners how to, um, how, to, how to start a podcast, but also how to do it um, professionally like a pro. Um, you, you do a couple great newsletters, including one of my absolute favorites, which is, um, life in progress. It's a great newsletter. And then you somehow found time to get engaged by house and chat with me for an hour. So <laughs> on the one hand, I think, damn, Jay is crushing it. On the other, it kind of overwhelms me and stresses me out just describing your life. <laughs> so, uh, on the other hand, you realize, oh, Jay's a perfect candidate to talk about burnout. How could he not be burning out? <laughs> yeah. So how do you like, I don't know, do you ever get overwhelmed? Like, and if so, what does that look like for Jay Klaus specifically? I think I live in a state of constant overwhelm, to be honest. I've just, I've um, made friends with it and my my capacity for overwhelm is a bit like a rubber band right so it, i i stretch it out really really far and it breaks a little bit and it contracts but it's still a little bit bigger than before and i think generally the way that i treat my time and my creative capacity is like touching a stove as a kid um, i have to go too far to realize what my limits are and then i hit burnout and then I immediately contract back and say, okay, that, that was too close. That was painful. Let's not do exactly that again. But it, it's kind of like a consistent that. Uh, and it expands my, my capacity, like I said, for overwhelm a little bit more. I can manage stress pretty well. But what I'm noticing lately is while I don't show outward overwhelm or I don't have like emotional breakdowns or anything... I have ceased feeling the highs very well uh, and the lows. I'm just like kind of in a constant state of like, eh. <laughs> if that yeah. makes sense. Totally. How, yeah. So do you think it's an interesting phrase, like managing stress well, um, because on the one hand, like, of course, like life is always stressful and we have to deal with stress. And if you have to deal with it, you might as well deal with it well. Right. But on the other hand, I think we can kind of fall into this trap where, yeah, like I'm really good at managing stress. So sure, I'll take on this new thing that's pretty stressful. So what do you make of that idea of managing stress well? Like, do you think, is that something to aspire to? Is it, you've mentioned that you've gotten better at it. Is that something you continue to want to get good at? Do you want to get less good at it? How do you think through that? It's definitely something that I have aspired to. There was an article I read one time that I've tried to find so many times to refer back to because it had such an impression on me. 
And it was a woman who is an executive at, I think, Google, talking about how she managed stress and how, to her, success was appearing in the moment, any moment, with grace so that people weren't like, oh, she's stressed out or she's overwhelmed or she's this or she's that. It was just like constantly checking when I'm communicating and showing up with other people, uh, am I am I showing these signs of uh, stress and not wanting to do that because it was empowering to her teams? I think there's a limit to that. I don't think that's where you want to show up in your personal life, for example. I think that you want to have a lot more vulnerability and openness. And I think I've gone too far now. Um, I was thinking about this last night that I don't share enough with my fiance about the overwhelm that I feel pretty constantly because to her, I think she, she sees me as like working too much and doing that by choice and, and uh, not feeling really stressed out about the amount of work I'm doing, but just like prioritizing things over her where really it's uh, it's, it's anxious energy where I feel like I have to get this done and it's very stressful internally. uh, But I don't portray that because I've built this muscle of trying to show control and grace all the time. But I'm starting to question whether that's actually true. I think it's I think it is really helpful in in like team settings. And there are always times to say like, hey, listen, um, I notice you're feeling this way. I feel that way too. And humanize and connect with people. But if you think about like Unreal Collective, I think I really strengthened this muscle through that period of my life because for almost four years I was facilitating these small mastermind groups with clients. And they were going on their own roller coasters and they were looking to me as someone who could help them get to the next level. They needed guidance. They needed this program they're paying for to get them results. And it just never felt appropriate for me to bring my own shit into that. And so I had to always, even in like the worst of times, pause, put on the mask a little bit, come in with high energy and perform. And so I think I've, I've gotten honestly too good for my own benefit at performing when I'm feeling overwhelmed, which sometimes may be convincing myself that actually I'm not overwhelmed when I am and, uh, taking on more than I can handle. So it's, it's, it's not necessarily something I continue to aspire to. It's a useful tool, but I think I've hit diminishing returns on managing stress. So what does it look like if we kind of zoom in to a specific moment of overwhelm where externally Jay's crushing it like that and he's doing it with grace too, (laughs) crushing it with grace. Um, But internally you are touching the hot pan and you're like, ooh, okay, definitely too far. Like what's an, walk us through that. Like what does that look, what's an example of that for you? I'm happiest when there is nothing on my calendar. And not just today, but also tomorrow morning, because I feel tomorrow's full calendar very intensely today. So like I'm happiest when I have a day and a half, you know, starting with today and tomorrow, just free. And with all the commitments on my plate right now, that does not exist. And so unless it's Saturday. So basically Saturday is my only chance to recoup my energy on a weekly basis or I just feel drained and joyless and I feel little bits of despair because there's no slowing down. There's just constant deadlines for my own projects, for SPI projects, for uh, having conversations with other people. Like there's just no slowing down and I need a period of slowdown. 
this past weekend, I was able to uh, take most of the weekend off because I edited most of my podcast during the week, which is so hard for me to find time to do right now. But that was magical. I felt so rejuvenated, even though I spent all day watching season one of Billions. Like the fact that I didn't have this looming, I need to have this done or tomorrow is going to be really busy. That looming feeling was very freeing. And so most of the time when I'm overwhelmed, it's just like, and then I got to do this and then there's this and then there's this. And it's this constant juggling and negotiation in my mind of where am I going to budget that time? What am I going to take time away from? What do I have to spring into action and do right now? Uh, in order to have any evenings or any weekend time. That's kind of the the place I'm living in now. Uh, so you're catching me at a very interesting time for this show because I'm both like at the extremes and super aware of it. Um, yeah, I feel and, a little guilty because I oh no <laughs> I, I I bring you on a show to talk about overwhelm and and by virtue of doing so increase your your level. Of overwhelm this is by catharsis. It's no, it's useful because the thing is like anything we do, you know, we have we have these experiences with the world around us and they're informing the way we think and feel. But until you articulate it with language, you don't always implicitly understand the things that you, uh, or you don't explicitly understand the things you implicitly, you know, kind of intuit about yourself. So this stuff is actually really nice because this is, uh, helping me process in real time. All right. It's funny. So I heard, I saw tweet recently earlier today by um Kay. he he said something about how like when, when he starts to feel stressed out and overwhelmed his default response is like work harder like push harder so like when we hit when it's almost like we, we touch our finger to the hot stove and weirdly our brain is like well just like suck it up and push harder and like somehow then the pain will go away and you won't burn your finger as much so what do you like when you okay so you're, you're in that moment and you're thinking oh, there's that dread right of like oh, there's like no margin for days on end i've got all this stuff um what do you do like what do you literally do when you're in that moment that instant of your life you're feeling that dread and overwhelm like what do you either like physically or mentally or like oh, what goes through your mind when you're in that moment i relate to what kay's saying because there's not an easy way out of it in my mind because I've lived so many years where failure or dropping the ball is just not an option in my mind. And I think it started in college when I studied journalism and they just teach you a very intense respect for deadlines in journalism because it's rooted in newspapers. And if you didn't get the story done, it didn't go to the editor. It couldn't go into print and there's literally a blank space in the newspaper and your editor's pissed. So I I built this respect for deadlines. And when I have a commitment that I made to myself or others, I'm going to hit it. That's who I am. That's my identity is I, I fulfill the things I say I'm going to do. And so when I'm feeling overwhelmed, there's no, I guess I'm just not going to do it this time. Nope, not an option to me. And so I do the same thing that Kay does of basically saying, I wouldn't say work harder, but there are days when I literally realize like, I got to get up at five in the morning tomorrow. That's the only way I'm going to fit in the three hours of time I know I need to have to get this done by the deadline with the day I have my schedule. I got to get up at five. And I'll wake up and it'll suck. And my first thought is just like fight. It's like, you got to fight through it. You got to do it. You got to get through it today. And I I tell Mallory this all the time too, when I'm feeling extra stressed out and it is like a time where I'm being vulnerable or I'm really at the limit and telling her this, she's like, what can I do to help? And it's like, I just need you to be patient with me and realize that I'm not going to feel better until I'm at this place and get this done. And unfortunately that's like, sorry, I got to work today. I got to, I got to get the podcast done. I know it's Saturday, but I got to do it. Otherwise it's not going to get done. And I, 
there's probably a better solution somewhere. Like to me, the most optimal is actually just de-scoping some of the things on my plate. Um, it's not necessarily being more efficient because I'm hella efficient. Uh, <laughs> but it's just like I'm at capacity. You know, we spent a year indoors, not going places, and that newfound time, which used to go to meeting people for coffee, going to meetups. I was like, this is time that I can just weaponize now. And I had a heck of a year as you're talking about, like all those things take time, but I had more time last year. And now that I want to go back out into the world, there are trade-offs and compromises to be had. Yeah. I guess, how do you think about margin? Like you you kind of alluded to this when I asked you about overwhelm and overwhelm is almost in in your way of looking at it, it's almost the opposite of margin. It's when you have no margin, right? You look yeah. you look ahead, or you look in the moment, and it's just meetings back to back to back, or stuff back to back to back. Um, so you you talked about maybe one way of getting there in terms of limiting scope. So talk about that a little bit. Like, what would that look like? Like, what would be a particular example of that? Like, if you if if Jay right now said, you know what, Nick, I'm committing to you. I'm going to limit scope on some particular thing in my in my work life. What, what would that be? Well, as a creator, which, you know, I am full-time employed with SPI right now, but I'm still running my business as a creator. As a creator alone, I have one newsletter that I publish weekly. Actually, two if you count the podcast-released emails. So two newsletters I publish weekly. I have Life in Progress that I publish monthly. I have two podcasts I publish weekly. So just my creator business itself has four deadlines a week minimum that I have to hit. And that's a commitment that I've made into perpetuity. It's not seasonal. It's like, this is something I have to do every week forever. Descoping to me is removing some of the commitments off my plate. That's a lot. Four things is a lot of things, but it's really hard to look at any one of them and say, this one should go away. Uh, And I'm not sure what that would be. And so that's where I'm stuck. I had I had a third newsletter. I had a LinkedIn newsletter, and I descoped that. I said, "Done. This one's out. Uh, maybe I'll publish that monthly instead, just to kind of take advantage of some of the subscribers that are there." But done. Not going to do it. Inside of that, you know, I've got to be pushing forward on our um, our projects and initiatives at SPI, which are aggressive. Like we're doing a lot of expansion as a company and as a brand into this world of community and how we create community for our audience, all new projects that everything we do, we have to build every asset from scratch. We have aggressive timelines. We have aggressive goals. I have to act as a leader for our team. You know, I have uh, three others on the CX team that I lead. That's just a lot, you know, it's, it's context switching. It's producing at a really high level. Uh, and I'm not sure what the de-scoping is because all of them are working in some degree, but your time's a zero sum game and every one of them is taking a little bit from the rest. Yeah. So what if I, you mentioned kind of looking at one of those things and saying, okay, how do I de-scope this? And then getting kind of stuck. So what, what if I said to you, Jay, okay, here's, I'm looking at my magic crystal ball. Here's really what you need to do. Your weekly newsletter needs to go to monthly. You just need to not have any any weekly newsletters anymore. What, like, just emotionally, like what comes up? I when, reject when, that. Yeah, so why? What, like, what's the, like, what goes through your mind when you think of something like that? 
Because that is the contract I have made to others. That is what I've said I will fulfill. And it's at the backbone of the business. Like long term, I still see myself as an independent creator. And for that to be true, I need to keep doing those things that are growing that side of the business, which is email, which is creative elements. Um, there are some follow on obligations like creative elements upside, both have sponsors. So there are obligations that I feel to sponsors because they purchase a certain number of impressions, a certain number of episodes. If I were to say, actually, I'm not going to publish an episode next week that actually costs me money to some degree. Um, so it's more so the commitment to the people and the trust I'm trying to build behind my name and the work that I do. I think maybe the more optimal solution is to live a little less close to the edge and in the immediate term feel some even more acute overwhelm to say this week I'm going to get ahead on editing three episodes of the podcast or actually instead of writing one newsletter a week I'm going to write three and get ahead of the curve because I'm, I'm literally living week to week right now on my content um, not from like the interview perspective I have a bunch of interviews recorded it's, it's the final edit on the podcast side of things but I'm doing, you know, it, it week to week. And so there's this constant burn of those deadlines. Whereas if I took a couple days and said, I'm going to let a couple of the rubber balls drop so that I get ahead on this, this is probably the most leeway that I have short of cutting out one of those projects entirely. Yeah. One of the things I've noticed about since starting to follow you more regularly over the last year, that's kind of interesting. And I'm sort of taking mental notes of watching you from afar is that you, you do have a lot of things that are, um, sort of recurring commitments, right? Like the podcast or the newsletter. Um, but you, it seems too, that you've also been doing some more one-off stuff. So that the, the podcast course, which it's not totally commitment free, like you, you do updates and you, um, but it, it's kind of a standalone product. Like once you've created it, it's there and you don't have to put that much recurring effort into it. And then you've been doing some kind of one-off, um, workshops, which are really cool. Um, so is that, um, is that intentional? Like one of the things that makes me think of is I, th when I think of overwhelm and, and burnout, I, it makes me think a lot more carefully about deciding to, when I think a mo of a model for, I have some new idea, do I want it to be a like a, a cohort based course where people, you know, it, I kind of recurs and I keep doing it or do I do a standalone course? Do I write a book? Do I write, you know, so does that, does that go through your mind? Like, how do you think about that strategically? Like, do you think about recurring versus one-off projects in terms of overwhelm and burnout? No, I don't think about them in those terms. I just think about them as part of the model. Like I, I want to make the majority of my income from standalone discrete assets that I produce one time and can be leveraged into perpetuity. Uh, that's podcasts like the pros, it's the workshops, it's my freelancing school courses, all of those things uh, I've made and they generate income. Same even with blog posts that have affiliate implications on them. I make them, they live there. Maybe I update them, but they're, they're generating income. I want the majority of my income to come from those things. I, didn't realize the maintenance cost on the ongoing commitments, but I think it's, it's part of the model. Like writing every week is building a relationship with people, uh, that is really the backbone of being able to have digital products that sell and, um, that I can distribute them somewhere. I would love to do more of those one-off projects. The workshops are basically what I can handle right now. And I think about it a little bit as a product development pipeline, um, 
podcasts like the pros, I sold in a different way than I've ever done before through presale and it completely de-risked the project and made it easy for me to justify the time because it was paid for and reserved, uh, by dozens of people before I even created anything. Uh, the workshops I feel like are a really good way for me to even test what I might want to pre-sell as a course. Uh, the community building crash course I just did 156 people bought that mind blowing. It really says like, wow, I could probably build a larger scale course for this. Um, it de-risks the idea that I might send a sales email to my list that is totally promotional about this course, pre-selling it. If I did that, I think it would sell really well. But right now I'm sitting here and I'm like, I don't have the month I had to create podcasts like the pros. I don't have that much space in a given month coming up to produce that course. I went super aggressive. Maybe I could uh, pre-sell it on a two-month timeline. But I love making that because there's just nothing more magical than one, making something that's already been paid for. And then two, every week, every month after that, just seeing that people are still purchasing it because you can start to wrap it into the weekly email, into the podcast episodes. You can kind of allude to it, nod to it. People find their way there. And it it wouldn't surprise me in the least if as we're sitting here talking, I get an email that says, hey, somebody bought podcasts like the pros or hey, somebody bought this workshop. But it's like still the most magical feeling in the world. Uh, and I, I just want to keep that flywheel turning. And so that's why I do all the things that I do because it feels like, okay, there's momentum here and the model's working and things are happening. But then I get into this place of thinking about, uh, the story of the investment banker and the fisherman, which I put in this most recent episode of creative elements, which is there's, there's a, there's a fisherman who catches a couple of fish and he brings them to his village and an investment banker says, Hey, how long did it take you to catch those fish? Like I said, just a couple of hours. Investment banker says, why don't you spend more time catching more fish? Then you can sell those fish, buy another boat, buy multiple boats, build a business, IPO, have a ton of money. And the fisherman says, yeah, but what's the point? And the banker says, so that you can only fish a couple hours a day and spend time with your family. I wonder all the time, like, am I approaching overwhelm? Am I approaching burnout to build the large business, to have the lifestyle that I could have now if I just did none of it? Uh, and it's a, it's a confronting question. Um, and the answer is probably somewhere in the middle, but I haven't quite found it yet. It's a great transition to another topic I wanted to ask you about that's, that's related, but you are, you're in transition in a lot of ways, different parts of your, your business and your work. And, um, but you are, um, you're engaged, you're getting married, right? Like you guys just bought a house, I think. Um, yeah. so that's, that's a big, like, life transition, you know, like that it's, it's sort of a, I mean, it's, it's cliche, but like a new chapter, right? That's a, that's a very different kind of layer on everything. So going at, just as your, all of your creative work is really ramping up in a lot of ways, and you're sort of launching into this new, um, chapter of life. How do you think about the idea of, um, work-life balance? That's a term that gets thrown around all the time, but like, is this something you think about, especially at this kind of crux in life? All the time more than ever there was, you know, when I was starting to do all these things in my like early to mid twenties, I just hated the idea of being boxed into how I was spending my time because of my cost of living. And I was just like, I'm going to get ahead of this. I want to build a recurring financial machine that supports my optionality. Even when I have more commitments even when I have higher expenses. And so I've just been sprinting to this point to try to get to a point where it's like, 
I have the optionality to work for myself to generate an income to support me and my family, including my wife if she doesn't want to work. And I'm like so close, you know, like I've pretty much gotten there, but here I am, I'm engaged. We bought a house. It's been really stressful. We, we, we moved in together, my fiance and I at the beginning of February, 2020. And that was the first time that we were living together. And a month later, come to find out we're going to be spending every moment together for the next year. And it worked out great. And so I was like, yeah, this is my person. We are going to get engaged. This is what I want. And then we bought a house and now we're talking about, we got to plan a wedding and then we got to have kids. Not God, I don't want to, but all these things, you know, like I am at this nexus of I'm approaching the point in life where I have the things I wanted to have and I've built what is almost a fully functioning economic machine to support those things like I wanted, but what is enough? How do I ensure that I have enough emotional capacity for my family and pure time? Because I don't want to be the fisherman who built the business, who no longer has a wife or no longer has friends because he was building the business. Uh, and it's a real risk. And I think about it all the time. So it's, it's good that I'm aware of it, but there are hard decisions that have to be made that I'm punting on making in terms of descoping and, and taking things away because I have the K belief of, I just need to work harder and I need to get through this and then I'll have it all. I'll have my cake. I'll eat it too. I'll have the optionality. Um, and maybe it's a delusion. Maybe it's more of choosing my enough and learning to budget better. And I can do that now. I don't know. I'm in the the messiness of it. Yeah. N- enough is a, is a hard word, especially for, for, I think a lot of creators who are, are just sort of driven by this identity of like more, not in the sense of more consumption, but more creation. Like I want to put out more good, helpful, beautiful stuff into the world. Right. And it's, it's addicting, you know, like I did the first workshop through ConvertKit and it sold a couple dozen. And I was like, wow, that was amazing. I want to do that again. And a couple iterations later, I have the community building crash course and it sold 156 copies. It's like, wow, that's amazing. If this works, it should work again and again. And the audience will keep growing and the numbers will get bigger and like life only gets better. Right? Like, there, there's no mechanism or I haven't made a contract with myself to say, when is one of these top numbers, these top level numbers enough that it doesn't need to grow. It just needs to persist. Um, because as things are growing, you just think this is all working where, where's the limit and why try to approach the limit? Why not just keep making hay while the sun is shining? But um, it's a hamster wheel in some ways and, and uh, a never-ending, always-moving goalpost. Yeah, it's, it strikes me too that it's, it's really hard because we're not ever really taught much about this explicitly. And a lot of us don't necessarily have good models for this growing up. Whereas on the other hand, we, we are all, I think, taught to do more, to set goals, to achieve, to push, to work harder, discipline. Um, ambition, all that kind of stuff like that gets, we have tons of models for that and plenty of reinforcement and instruction in how to do that and through education. Right. But if you think about it, we, we have virtually no instruction in saying no, like letting go of the, even moderating stuff. Right. So yeah, I don't know. How do you, it's one of those things I think about as I've got young kids right now and 
trying to think about how do I model both of those in a healthy way, that kind of that ambition and that drive and the desire to, to create and, and do important things, but then also to be able to, yeah, let go of stuff, which is such a hard, it's such a fuzzy, soft, like squishy word, um, but such a vital skill, right? And there are discrepancies in the people around us. Small example, um, sometimes Mallory will talk about uh, some of her friends or her friends' uh, fiancés or husbands and like, man, he works his ass off. He does so much for her. And in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, I work my ass off. I try to do all this for us. But our battles are, you know, you're working too much. So it's, it's this inconsistency of, do we value and hold up the people that are working really hard? Because it seems like society says, these are the people who are crushing it. These are the people who like are at the tippy top of what it means to be a man, to be a business owner, to be a founder, to be a creator. This is what it really looks like to make it. And on some degree, we look at people who have more balance and control and we say, that seems really nice. But we also kind of say it like, that's cute. It, it almost feels like they've kind of like, resigned to like mm. this is good enough and there's a little bit of a like hmm, couldn't hack it huh like couldn't couldn't keep doing and we don't explicitly say that but you feel it you feel it in the way people talk about people in that in that camp and so there's there's a subtle um vicious expectation and push to just keep doing more and more and more and that's what it means to be successful but at the same time in our personal lives that's what's often just like tearing families and couples apart, I think. Yeah. How do you, so we've kind of talked about your personal sense of overwhelm and all the stuff you do and, and a little bit about sort of work-life balance. And you've talked about your relationship with your fiance and, and how you guys kind of talk through some of that stuff. What about, and here's another kind of cliched term, but that I still think is really important, even though the, the term is cliched, which is self-care. Um, so <laughs> you, you've talked about kind of tending to your, your businesses and your obligations to your audience and your customers tending to sort of the important relationships in your life, right? Your fiance. But what about, you know, that, that relationship we always tend to forget about, which is the relationship with ourselves. So again, ha I don't know, just when I say self-care, what's, let's do some free association. Like what's the, what are the first things that come to mind when you hear that term? I think about my mental state kind of like the health meter on old school fighter video game, like street fighter or mortal Kombat, Right. So my mental state is typically like towards the end. Sometimes it's like in blinking red when blinking red happens. It's like, I got to stop everything I'm doing and, and rejuvenate. And so to me, self-care is just whatever moves that health meter all like back to full helps start refilling it. And it can be a lot of things, but typically it just means like mentally checking out of the work and being present. And outside of that, it can take a ton of forms. It could be watching TV. It could be, uh, working in the garden with Mallory, it could be going on a vacation. Um, the challenge that I have with vacations, I don't let things drop. I don't give up on commitments. So to clear space for vacations, I have to feel more acute overwhelm to get ahead of where I am right now. So I often push myself into that blinking red part of the meter to even clear space for a vacation, which makes the general enjoyment of that vacation harder because I'm like not in a good place when it starts. Uh, so I, I prefer to practice self-care in really small ways. Like this past weekend when I had a day and a half to mostly watch TV because I was ahead of my production schedule, that was the best I felt in weeks, like life-changing. 
uh, exercising is usually self-care because when you're exercising, like there's nothing else you can be doing besides maybe some light thought, but usually it's like very productive, um, not in the nitty gritty in the weeds type of stuff. So when I force myself to run or when I can just agree that I have no expectations for, uh, producing in a given moment or performing in a given moment, that's what self-care looks like to me. What would your ideal self-care routine look like? Or, or maybe you don't even think about it in terms of routines. Maybe it's more of this kind of one-off thing for you. How do you, how do you think about that? Yeah, I don't actually, I don't like routines because routines themselves feel like tasks. And what I don't need more of is tasks. What I need more of is free space to do what I want to do in that moment, which is often nothing. So to me, like the best self-care routine, we'll call it that I could have is just, uh, not having anything on my schedule for the first few hours in the morning and spending that time drinking coffee, maybe going outside for a walk. I I like to do walks. I wish I did more walks. Um, I love listening to a podcast on walks. I love running and listening to a podcast, that type of thing where it's like, I don't need to show up and perform for anybody right now. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of my self-care is very individualized. Like I, I, I feel like I can fill that meter up a little bit faster when I'm just no, but nobody has expectations of me. Not even to say that, uh, Mallory does ever have hard expectations of me, but my perception that other people have expectations of me makes it harder for me to, in, uh, uh, enjoy moments sometimes. So I, I do need alone time from time to time and the mornings are a good time for that. Speaking of alone time, do you ever get lonely as a virtual, as a creator and someone who works from home? Not really. I feel like I'm on the other end of the spectrum where I almost have so much socialization in my life through social media, through creating things for uh, an audience of people, through cultivating communities. My, my bigger struggle is showing up emotionally for my partner when I've spent all day being emotionally available for the people in my, in my world. Um, so I very rarely feel lonely. I actually more so yearn for alone time. When you say showing up emotionally for your partner, um, what, break that down a little bit. Like what, what do you mean? I mean, you don't have to talk about specific, uh, topics, but like, what does that actually look like? Like being able to show up emotionally versus not. It's listening with empathy. It's being present. It's, uh, sharing in the highs and lows that they present and being out of my own head. It's, it's really just that it's, uh, I, I often think to myself, like, how can I be a better listener right now? This is like the mantra that I try to tell myself in moments because I know this is where I'm slipping. I know that I'm too absorbed in my own overwhelm. And so I have to remind myself, like, be here. How can I be a better listener? And there'll be moments where I'll try to jump in and say like, oh, I think I know where you're going or I think here's what we should do. And I realize like that's not what she or somebody needs right now. Like what they need is just empathetic listening. Um, And sometimes that's really hard if I've been doing that all day for a community of people. Um, But it's a muscle. You stretch it. And sometimes you also need to have boundaries during the day and say, I can't be emotionally available to everybody all the time. I need to reserve some of that and I need to have 
you know, afternoons just to myself where I don't check into social media or the community or, or elsewhere. A question I get asked a lot as a psychologist and therapist is, um, so you're a professional listener. So you listen all day long. Like, does that make you a really good listener as a, as a spouse or as a friend? And, and I don't know. So let me, I'm going to ask you, like, in some ways you are also a professional listener in, in the sense that you, I mean, you, you, you run a couple podcasts, which is to be good at, you definitely have to be a good listener. You're also a community builder and facilitator. And like that obviously involves a lot of listening, even honestly, just being, being an independent creator and business owner, like on some level, that's about listening well to your customers and your audience. Right? So what do you think? Does that translate to other non-work areas of your life? Do you feel like since being a podcaster, for instance, do you think you've gotten better at being a more attuned listener in your, you know, with your fiance or with friends and family? I think it makes me more attuned. Yes. I think it makes me more insightful. It definitely makes me ask better questions, but that's not what always what people need. I think what it causes me to do a lot of times is to, if somebody opens a loop, I very quickly say, I know where this loop is going to close. And I try to just jump there because since I'm always trying to be more efficient with my time, it's like, I know how the story ends. We can just go there, but that's not what people want. They want to tell you the story and you need to listen to it. Even if you think you know where it's going and oftentimes I'm wrong, but, um, yeah, I don't know that it makes me a better, a better listener in terms of what people want from me. I think it makes me a little bit more, uh, insightful, which isn't always useful. Yeah, like you can be a more skilled listener, but it doesn't necessarily make you a better listener uh, for a given person, right? You can have the tools, but so normally in, in podcast interviews like this, uh, we sign off by asking where, where people can go to learn more about you and your work. And um, frankly, you know, people can just Google your name and they can find your stuff. <laughs> what I want to ask you instead is uh, kind of on on theme for this this podcast, what is a particular fear or insecurity you have as a creator that would surprise a lot of people who follow you or kind of admire you from a distance? The biggest fear is dropping the ball, but, um, my, my current insecurity is that I'm not specific or relevant enough for any given person or not polarizing enough, or I'm not interesting enough. Like maybe I'm just too middling in my opinions or the things that I want to dabble in. Um, I often worry that because of these constraints on time and knowing that I'm going to ship something no matter what the threat is quality. You know, am I going to make something that's as good as it should be? Uh, does this thing that I'm going to interrupt other people's lives with matter? Is it going to make them better? Is it going to make them happier? Is it going to be an additive experience to their day? Is it going to make them want to come back? I feel like the number of things I'm committed to prevent me from digging in more deeply into any one given piece, which threatens to make my work uh, underwhelming. Or I wouldn't say underwhelming, but average not stand out. I feel like you have to make something that is, has the capacity to be somebody's favorite thing to really stand out and make a go of it in this world. And I'm wondering if I'm shooting myself in the foot by not giving myself enough time to, to incubate and make those things. Thanks Jay. This has been great. I really appreciate your honesty and vulnerability and being willing to, to share. And, um, yeah, thank you. Thanks for giving the platform. Uh, 
yeah, if you <laughs> if you want to find me, I'm hard to avoid if you Google my name. But um, Yannick, I appreciate uh, meeting you in real time and letting me articulate some of these things. Uh, hopefully someone out there connects with some of it and it's helpful. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Minds and Mics. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing Minds and Mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for continuing to support the show and we'll see you next time.